Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shuomon Katoshu Daiyonju Nisoku Shinjin Tomoni Sutsu Entangling Vines, Case 42 Cast Aside both mind and body. O Baku Kion said to the assembly, inner and outer, body and mind, all must be discarded. Most people are unwilling to empty their minds, fearing that they will fall into emptiness. Little do they realize that their minds are empty from the start. The foolish eliminate things, but do not eliminate thought. The wise eliminate thought, but do not eliminate things. Bodhisattvas have minds like empty space. They have renounced everything and have no attachments, even to the merit they have made. However, there are three levels of renunciation. Great renunciation is when inner and outer, body and mind have all been cast aside and like empty space, have no place for attachment. After this, one follows the situation and responds to circumstances with both subject and object forgotten. Middling renunciation is when one follows the way, performs virtuous acts and gives selflessly with no thought of gain. Small renunciation is when one does all sorts of good deeds in the hope of gaining merit, but relinquishes such attachments upon hearing the Dharma and realizing that all is empty. Great renunciation is like having a flame in front of you. No longer is there either delusion or awakening. Middling renunciation is like having a flame at your side. There are times of light and times of darkness. Small renunciation is like having a flame behind you. You cannot see the pitfalls in front of you. Good afternoon in this Eastern time zone. Good whatever time it is, wherever you may be. It's wonderful to have us all be together here on this winter day 
the last day of the Hoanji winter session. Cold, cold, cold. A wonderful catalyst for practice. More conducive to contraction than heat. Sitting in the cold, just wearing the traditional robes, monks become very familiar with the various openings on the sides of their koromos and the airflows that go through them, especially if there is no heat or if you're sitting outside. Allowing the cold really to penetrate oneself completely is the only way to not suffer from it. There's a koan about that, the mukanjo, no heat, no cold. And it appears also to be in 2022 in the beginning that the losses we have become so accustomed to I experienced very keenly. Thich certainly up there with the Dalai Lama was one of the most recognized manifestations of Buddhism in this world. And his work of having had to forsake his home and to come into the Western world and bring us this wonderful teaching of peace and of vigorous application of the Dharma is really something to behold. And it is to be beheld by us, not just as something to look up to, but how can we live our lives with such a commitment to every moment in a way that goes beyond strive. Warfare is strive. Strife is opposition. Peace is so much more complex and dynamic. Having grown up myself in a household of two parents who practically lost everything in World War II, one message was conveyed to us children and that was in war everybody loses there is no victor everybody loses with war and this brings us some of us to this practice but it also brings us to how we approach this practice are we fighting our way for something that is 
we want to have? These are very interesting questions. And today's koan goes exactly into that direction. This is about the longest koan that's not a story that I have encountered here in this Shumon Katoshu. It's two pretty substantial paragraphs of many words. But we are listening to the teaching of Obaku Kiyun. Obaku Kiyun, the Dharma father of Rinzai Gigen, to which we trace the lineage, the lineage of this Rinzai tradition. So Obaku appears in 12 cases in this Shumon Katoshu Entangling Vines collection. We really have no exact dates for the time when he was born, but it must have been somewhere between 768 and 771 of the common era. Most scholars by now believe that he passed away in the year 850. Obaku Kiyon. Kiyon, the monk's name, means phenomenal, rare fortune. A wonderful name to receive. Obaku, as I spoke about before, Obaku actually is the designation of a plant, of a tree the Amur cork tree. And where Obaku was ordained, that mountain was Mount Obaku because it was a hill on which you found a little forest of these Amur cork trees. And speaking about opposition, well, in China, in Japan, and the regions of East Asia, the Amur cork tree is a native plant. Here in the United States, it is considered an invasive species. Even here in the state of Massachusetts, in which I reside, uh, it is listed as a noxious weed. Yet in the native lands, the bark of the tree is harvested. It is one of the main 50 medicines in traditional Chinese medicine. Out of that bark, a yellow color is extracted. A yellow color that is used in this medicine, but also in Japan for printing woodblock prints. And this is where uh, the name Obaku comes from. So he was born in the Fujian province. And you might remember Shingiroshi spoke about it just recently that uh, he was a very tall person, maybe, maybe seven feet tall. And besides that, he had this pearl on his forehead. forehead. And that pearl always reminds me when I look and when we all look, look at the Buddha statue, you know, 
Buddha statue, the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, is always depicted with two protrusions from his skull, one in the back, a larger one that's called the Ushnisha, and one in the front, the Urna, which symbolizes this Dharma eye, the third eye, and is a very auspicious symbol. In Ovaku's case, though, it might have been a callus, a callus from his practice of bowing over and over again, all the way to the floor with his forehead, so much that the pearl formed. He became a monk in the Fukien province and was maybe 17 years old at the time. It was at the monastery that was near that stand of the cork trees. There's a story about him on his pilgrimage, meeting another monk who started to perform miracles and things like that, but clearly Obaku had no interest in anything that is miraculous. Not walking on water, no tricks, just this. And he decided to go and see Baso Doitsu. Yet when he was traveling, he learned that Baso had already passed away. And Obaku become, began his studies with Kyakujo Eikai. The successor, one of the successors to Paso Doitsu. He became a successor to Hyakujo and founded his own monastery, which he named after the place he was ordained. So that's why Obakuzan is to be found in two different provinces in this China of the Tang dynasty. So on the path, he got to know the governor Pei Shu. In 842, this governor actually became a student of Obaku. And Pei Shu became a successor to Obaku and wrote their interactions down in a book, the Denshin Hoyo, the Zen teachings of Huang Po, in two volumes. Peishu even went out of the mold of a typical Confucian Chinese government official. He wore robes. And during the great persecution of Buddhism in 845, he protected Obaku and some of his Sangha. So this is Obaku and this koan is a portion of 
des Densin Hoyo. The Buddhist persecution, that is another war. Like so many wars that we see that are not wars that are fought with guns, swords, or other sharp implements. There's a lot of warfare going on in the world within these United States based upon completely different set of weapons, ideas, And one side calls the idea a lie, the other side believes in it. It's a very, very tricky situation to find that whatever idea it is, we have to be very, very careful not to turn it into a weapon. It is nice to want to achieve wonderful things, but the teachings of Buddhism call us to go about it in a different way. And this portion here of the Zen teachings of Wang Po speak just to this very point. Inner and outer, body and mind, all must be discarded. Well, these are words. But we have to understand that these are words that came from Obaku and from his experience of what it meant in his life to discard inner and outer to go beyond body and mind. With all the teachings that we encounter on our path in this world, in the study of Buddhism, let us be very careful that we do not try to take these implements we call words and use them to gain entrance or that we expect they will unlock and be able to replace that life or the experience that was expressed by them. Obaku was there. Obaku had experienced what it means, no body, no mind, no inner, no outer. And just like the historical Buddha, at first, I can't say anything about it, yet finding themselves and we finding ourselves in this world of human beings and of language, we have to say something. But that something is an expression of a non-verbal reality that by speaking about it becomes maybe relatable, but it does not 
replace. So, with the words, inner and outer, body and mind, all must be discarded. Any idea what inner and outer is, any identification or separation of the idea of what the body is or what the mind is, all of that has to be discarded. Discarded doesn't mean it is worthless. It's not being thrown in the trash. It is just being let go and not applied at this very activity because it is a tool that can not be used to any avail. Thinking about it, no matter how brilliant our ideas are, how deep our knowledge might be, it will not be able to have any effect besides this split of ideas. Most people are unwilling to empty their minds, fearing that they will fall into emptiness. Most people are unwilling to empty their minds of being stuck to this discursive thinking, of following that constant stream, of having that broadcast with the talking heads on all the time. And of course, who's talking, you know? A very familiar voice. Very familiar voices from all different kinds of ages of our experience. From the little child that still, there's a kid's channel in there. I think some of us might really Tune into that at times. <laughs> and there are all the other channels too. The science channel. All kinds of blah, 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 blah. Being afraid to turn that off or to just not pay too much attention to it is a difficult undertaking as we all know from sitting on the cushion. Somebody should make a cartoon with people sitting on the cushions instead of the head, just a big TV set. <laughs> That's how it feels sometimes. And the screen is blank, it's empty or not so much more nowadays, but when television still just came over the air, there was this wonderful, fantastic pattern of, of the static on the screen visualized. Even that is better. <laughs> it's not empty. It might not be recognized, recognizable for us, but that is the very very direction we have to take here as Obaku tells us. Being afraid that nothing is going 
through there is only a fear of something that likes that kind of constant engagement and entertainment. Little do they realize that their minds are empty from the start. The Buddhist teaching of emptiness is probably one of the least understood teachings, but it is really, really important that we don't get stuck on an idea of emptiness. Emptiness is not yet another divine substance, another God substance, or an absolute, or nothing. Emptiness is a principle of the Buddhist teachings, and I will give some emptiness to this cup so you can move, and then we'll talk about how it is looked upon in the Buddhist teaching. Shunyata. Shunyata. Shunyata is the absence of selfhood, the absence of any kind of identity, the absence of any kind of fixated thingness. One of the examples that's often given, and I, I even believe that in one of Thich Nhat's hand, in, in one of his books, it's, it's also explained using the, the metaphor of a table. Here's a table. We call it a table from the human point of view. That is a functional view of it. So table is a functional view of really an event of the cosmos that manifests right here in front of us. At Hoenji, the TV screen sits on the table. Now, as soon as one of those legs breaks off, the concept says, oh, this table is broken. But Shunyata teaches us that the event of table has just changed. There is no inherent tableness. Each little piece of wood there that comes together in such a table comes from different places, from different trees, has atoms from this part of the world, that part of the world, whatever. We can see that there is a stream that constantly changes. And just for the convenience of our human world, we call it a table. Shunyata means there is no tableness. So for us human beings, that means there is no selfhood that is fixated. In the same way that this table holds up the screen at Hoenji without falling down, it is real. You, you stub your toe on the leg, you'll know it is real. The same with our self. In the human world, this self comes into existence and it is there. It is there. That's why we have 
so many wonderful individuals, yet there is no such thing as individuality. We are as much events as every phenomenon in this world. And it becomes difficult when we want a specific channel on that projects this idea of a self as a specific representation. Little do they realize that their minds are empty from the start. Just means little do we realize often that these are not things. These are unfolding events and the thingness is what makes difficulty. Obaku says, the foolish eliminate things, but do not eliminate thought. Our thinking process of, ah, this is a table based upon the convenience of a human being of wanting to put something on it that's not on the floor. This expedient means of calling it a table takes on its own life. And we start to get fixated. We cannot see beyond it anymore and appreciate the non-fixated nature of the table. The thoughts remain the reality of what the event is in front of us, fades into the background. That's how Obaku describes the process of a foolish person. Well, nobody likes to be called a fool. Well, guilty as charged, I am. But also, the wise eliminate thought, but do not eliminate things. And here in the translation, things sounds like object. Uh, but let's look at it from the point of view of Buddhism and call them dharmas. Dharmas, energetic events that reveal themselves in a specific phenomenal form. That connection remains and we make connection with it. And the thought of table is what also becomes dynamic in this case. Bodhisattvas have minds like empty space. Empty space, again, not voidness, not absence of, absence of fixation, wonderful movement of energies, revelations, void of stagnation, of fixation, not stoppable, not pushable, not graspable, but always unfolding and energetic. That's the mind of the bodhisattva. They have renounced everything and have no attachments. Even to the merit they have made. 
Now, here comes the word married. Married, again, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. There is no celestial karma bank in which you can enter uh, 15 times Hanya Shingyo chanted. Merit goes up by two points. And when we misbehave, the merit crashes. It's not a stock market. And merit is not an investment. When I look at merit from my point of experience, it's more, again, from a point of view of an energetic nature that is non-oppositional, that is created through that. It is like the harmony that we experience when we chant. Even though we have 10, 15 different voices, we find ourselves together in a space where suddenly these individual voices turn into one whole that resonates with and from each other. This is the feeling of merit, what it creates. No attachment means, again, the dynamic nature of our being doesn't come to a rest. Those who come and see me and thank you for coming and visiting and, and speak to me in these Dharma conversations and Doksan know that I like to say that attachment means arrested relationship arrested relationship. We have to make relationship. In order for me to pick this fan up, I have to make relationship and I have to hold it. So attachment, grasping. I'm grasping this. Yeah, I'm grasping it. And now I'm fanning myself. But it's relationship and relationship is initiated. It is realized. And then it has also to be completed. If I don't complete relationship with this fan here and I hold it like this forever, and then I make more relationship with my other hand with something else, you know? Uh, and if it gets stuck here, I can't even eat anymore. The fan would look terrible or even worse. Imagine I should go and wipe myself. Not possible. So this is attachment, attachment. What can we do to have non-attachment is we have to bring these relationships to completion. I thank the book and I let it go. When I don't need the fan anymore, I, with gra gratitude, I put it down and the attachment is gone. And here come the three levels of renunciation that Obaku talks about. Now, before I go into that, I wanted just, I picked up the book. Probably many of you have seen this one. This is the Zen teachings of Huang Po, uh, translated uh, by John Blofeld. And when I look inside, this is from 1958. So it's one of the earliest texts. And interesting, really, nice to see is there's the bird on the front of the book. Since then, it has taken a very, very long time for really another translation of the Zen teachings of Huang Po to come out. 
And that was just maybe last year. And thanks to uh, Shuko Sans and my good friend, Jamie, I have a copy of it. This is a bird in flight leaves no trace. A new translation of Huang Po's teaching by Robert E. Boswell Jr. and Song U Kim with the uh, commentary by a modern Korean Rinzai Zen master. Very interesting. And the Shumon Katashu just took from that original text, this koan. And you might think, okay, what is all this about? Because when I open this book here and I read what Huang Po has to say, listen to this on page 93. He talks about renunciation. The fruits of renunciation are accomplished not by learning, but by bringing a halt to all deliberation. If you now set out to seek the mind with the mind, you are only borrowing another's house, learning through mere imitation. When will you ever have any attainment? The ancients had such keen minds that even hearing just one word, they seized their learning. They were called practitioners who ceased learning, acted spontaneously, and relaxed in the way. Practitioners today only wish to gain much knowledge and much understanding to extensively explore the meaning of texts. They call this practice, but they don't understand that much knowledge and much understanding, to the contrary, becomes a barrier. And now I sit here with this book in the hand and read it to you. And you are really welcome to think, oh my God, what a hypocrite. But that's how it is, you know. Sometimes we have to use some very, very odd tools to shake loose all that conceptual thinking that we have. And if the words of an ancient master who so kindly uh, over this time of thousands of years transmits to us this impulse that we need to go beyond this enslavement to ideas, to Schwabhava, Schwabhava, that, that is the, uh, the selfhood, the thingness, then I'm very grateful for it. And and if I have to play the role of a hypocrite or a fool at the time, so be it. So now the bodhisattvas here. Three levels of renunciation. Great renunciation is when inner and outer, body and mind have all been cast aside like empty space, have no place for attachment, after this, one follows the situation and responds to circumstances with both subject and object forgotten. 
This is the manifestation, the actualization of non-duality. And I've been speaking about that also with some of you. Non-duality, and I please forgive me if I say it again, non-duality is really almost as misunderstood as awakening or enlightenment. You know, it's if we make it into a thing again, then there might be the perception, oh, it is something that we have to gain. We have to attain. We have to arrive at. We have to fight for. We have to suffer for. We have to whatever do so we can get it. But if there is one person who says that you have it from the very beginning, and that there's not even a single thing in this universe, muichi motsu, then it is Obaku who teaches us that, that non-duality. I've taken to explain it like this. Non-duality does not mean that there is not dark and light. Non-duality only means when it is light, it is light. When it is dark, it is dark. And duality comes into existence when it is light. And we say, oh my God, I hope it doesn't get dark. <laughs> when it is dark, we start cutting it, the darkness into two and say, oh my God, when will it get light? That's how duality comes into existence. And in this non-duality, in this being with what is, there comes the freedom to act according, in concord with the way what is being asked from us. Sitting in the Zendo is a wonderful place to practice this. Formal practice is a wonderful way to practice this because we can realize this non-duality by bringing together our hands and completely disappearing into this. And we do it over and over again. When we chant, we completely get into the chanting and there is no self-awareness. There is no other than the activity. We are able, and at that moment, we manifest that non-duality. And why do we practice that so much? Because when we step outside, suddenly the world comes at us. All these old patterns are re-energized. The ideas of this is bad, this is good, I have to I should have, and all of that. These are all the little thousand cuts of which just one cuts the non-duality into duality. Being with what is. It is a qualitative experience of our lives that cannot be measured because as soon as a measure comes into existence, it's cut in two. 
That's why Opaku says, when inner and outer body and mind have all been cast aside, and one follows the situation and response to circumstances with both subject and object forgotten. The ideas of subject and object are forgotten. We are right there. The world is still unfolding. This activity of Dharma is still unfurling right there in front of us. Just our concepts of it do not cut it into two. Middling renunciation is when one follows the way, performs virtuous acts, and gives selflessly with no thought of gain. So we could say, when we practice formally, maybe that is one form of the middling renunciation. Let's call it intermediate. So much for not putting a measure on it, right? <laughs> but there are different types. There are different ways. And following the way, performing virtuous act, giving selflessly with no thought of gain is wonderful. It's wonderful. If that is what our life can bring us, and if that is what we can manifest, by all means, let's do it. Then it goes to small renunciation. Small renunciation is when one does all sorts of good deeds in the hope of gaining merit, but relinquishes such attachments upon hearing the Dharma and realizing that all is empty. Some scholars point to this here from the point of view, yeah, this is a little uh, tongue Buddhism franchisism because the Zen franchise, which is the great renunciation, uh, likes to speak about the middle renunciation of the Mahayana and the small renunciation of the Theravada. Maybe it is. Maybe it is, but it's a good description of the various functions that we can take on. If we cannot manifest the great renunciation, small at the moment, it's okay. Here is the last paragraph. Great renunciation is like having a flame in front of you. No longer is there either delusion or enlightenment. When we have the flame right in front of us, our path is well lit. We can clearly see there is no more stumbling around in the darkness of ignorance. But even here, we have to be careful. 
in one of the Buddhist scriptures, or let's say modern Buddhist writings, uh, one of the Ajans, uh, one of the, the Thai forest monks from the West, actually, a Western practitioner, writes about the Dharma, that we have to be careful not to use the Dharma as a flashlight. any kind of idea that we have to illuminate something that is of a specific form or has a specific beam that we can, there's a scientific flashlight that we can point at it. Oh, this is how it looks in the scientific view. This is how it looks in the Buddhist view. That is still an objectified and separated illumination through some kind of means. What really here is great renunciation is being the flame. We got to be that light. How much clearer could the Buddha have said it in his uh, last sutra, you know, the Paranibbana Sutra, when Ananda asked him, what shall we do, world on of one, when you are gone? Atadipa, you are the light. It doesn't say, get a flashlight. <laughs> it says, you are the light. So this is. And awakening, being awake and seeing in that light that we ourselves illuminate the entire cosmos, this entire life, does not come with the guarantee that we will like what we see. We will see the warfare. We will see the strife. However, we can then, in accord with what we can do, attend to it in a different way. And let's not just oppose it. Here we come back to non-duality. Opposition will firmly ground us in duality. It's almost like that Newton cradle, you know, goes this way, boop, comes back. And it's always this, this impulse of opposition is always opposed because this is how the universe in this two-phase reality of dualism works. We cannot overcome our opponents. We have to go beyond opposition. And it's such a tricky thing. If we oppose war, that opposition taken up as our main point still concentrates on war. And we enact a kind of war on war. And this is just an endless chain of repeating oppositions. How can we get beyond that? This is the real conundrum of this human life, but Buddhism teaches us here. As soon as we enter the world of non-duality, it becomes clear how to move forward. 
Opposition also often means we would rather leave out this, this other part. No, this is not helpful. But we have to bring it in to be complete. And only in completeness, this universe, this life will feel whole. That is the flame of great renunciation. Middling renunciation is like having a flame at your side. There are times of light and times of darkness. And again, we go through all of these and manifest all of these various levels of renunciation over and over again in different ways. Somebody who can shine clearly and see all the pitfalls is not necessarily safe from having that flame on their side. It happens to all of us. And there is darkness, there is light. And sometimes we know the brighter the light is, the sharper the shadows. Small renunciation is like having a flame behind you. You cannot see the pitfalls in front of you. In this case, you know what you should get? Get a flashlight. <laughs> That's why we have the Dharma. That's why we have the Dharma teaching. That's why the Buddha speaks about the raft. If there were no need for a raft, I suppose he wouldn't have said to Subhuti that even the teachings of Buddhism must be left behind. This koan is a koan if we had to think of it in a way of this is something that we can pass. Shumon Katoshu should end at case 42. This is a life koan, like so many life koans that we have. Our vigorous effort to reconcile all the potential that we have, to learn how to live in this broken world and break as little as ultimately necessary, and to share, to light, to enlighten to illuminate all places of darkness, casting aside both mind and body, ultimately is giving ourselves fully to this fantastic chance of a life as a human being. Oh, the more lights we have, the brighter it will be. Let's shine together. And in the same way, the light of Thich Nhat Hanh. Maybe the name has transformed, but like a flame that has lit so many others, it is shining on and on.
This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.